Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret and would like to banish from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode, episode 117 of My Time Capsule, is the actor and presenter Dallas Campbell, best known for being a presenter on Channel 5's The Gadget Show and Bango's The Theory on BBC One. Dallas began his career as an actor, like his great uncle, more of that in the podcast, but he's now best known as a presenter of sciencey things. Although he's not actually a scientist, he's presented the shows I've already mentioned, as well as The Treasure Hunters, where he searched for the world's most prized and valuable treasures, both natural and man-made. He presented Airport Live with Kate Humble and Supersized Earth, examining the scale and pace at which humans have transformed the Earth in a generation which was BAFTA-nominated. Other shows include Egypt's Lost Cities, Britain Beneath Your Feet, City in the Sky and Time Scanners. Dallas is a regular presenter of Horizon. He hosted Doctor Who's 50th anniversary celebrations, Stargazing Live and two national tours of Bango's The Theory. He writes regularly for the BBC science magazine Focus, as well as the Times Eureka magazine and The Observer. He won Celebrity Mastermind and wrote the book Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet. He's a clever lad, our Dallas, and a joy to chat with, as I hope you'll now discover. Cheers. That's why theatre, when it's good... It's not always good. Sometimes it's awful, but it's why theatre, when it's good... You've is... seen my shows then, have you? No. <laughs> I could well have done. You know, I've been to a lot of... I've seen a lot of theatre in my life. Actually, funnily enough, um, the very first day of lockdown last year, mm. I had tickets to the National Theatre to see 
Robert Lepage's Seven Streams of the River Ota. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the last day and it was the last night and then and the National was closing down. So I got to see the very last day before lockdown. And I went to this theatre and there was this kind of group of people. We all knew that it was the last day of the National Theatre before this lockdown had happened. And obviously the cast did. And it was one of those shows that completely transcended... It, it was magic. It was pure magic. And it was the, the audience became one. We became a single unit appreciating this absolutely extraordinary piece of theatre that was seven hours long. And everything about it was just... And I kind of came out thinking, if I die now, I've seen, I've seen that, that perfect art where there's a complete psychic connection between the performers and the audience and between and and it just which is so rare in theatre there's a mm. you know a handful of shows where that's happened when it's been completely magical when it's become almost a kind of religious experience where it's, it's just effortless the that communication between audience and anyway yes and that's that seven hours it was seven hours so you've done well, it wasn't you've done the walk i, I have done the walk yeah i did walk, but it's seven it's I was like, oh, seven hours. But it's like people sort of binge watch seven hours of Netflix in one go now. Yeah. And no one really sort of thinks about it. And actually, actually, the idea of seven hours of theatre generally fills people with horror, only because most theatre is ghastly. Because it's... <laughs> it's well, I, I, I reread Peter Brook's The Empty Space, actually, quite recently for a, for a yeah. thing. And his Peter Brook's, you know, notion of deadly theatre, of that theatre that somehow is meant to be a bit reverential and we have to sort of sit politely through because it's clever and, and all that kind of stuff and like sort mm. of awfulness but actually yes that show and it was the combination of everything the combination of we knew this was that the theater was going to close for an indefinite period of time but anyway so yes i, I came away from that thinking okay I've, I've seen close to sort of perfect art when art becomes almost a kind of quasi you know that religious that sort of sense that you can't really explain it when it was no when it's amazing we all came out at the end just looking at each other going holy fuck I'll probably never see anything that good ever again. Did it occur to you? Now, I only say this because we have this very strange connection, you and I, that as a young man, I worked with your great uncle. Is that right? Yeah, Robert Edison. The great Robert Edison, I have to say. I mean, not a name that necessarily people will know now, but he was one of the great actors from the 1930s, right through to working with McKellen as an old actor. His career was quite extraordinary. And if people don't know him, he is the last crusader in the Indiana Jones and the last crusade. He was part of that that group, that sort of old school group of which Gilgood, of course, probably was the most famous. And he was known for his voice, this extraordinary baritone voice. And I, I actually remember, I remember when he was filming with Spielberg that scene. And of course, I was very excited because I'd seen the first Rages of the Lost Ark. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, Uncle Bob as I knew him, was a, bit, was a big part of my life and, and mm. when, I, when I was little. You know, I was slightly in awe of him because he was this wonderful actor and he was, you know, quite well known. And, and I used to go, when he was sort of touring, I remember he was sort of touring with the RSC and I, I used to go and see him and go to his dressing room and mm. that was all a, a great thrill. So yes, when he did, when he was doing Indiana Jones, and I remember sort of sitting with him and he was, he was actually quite upset. I remember he, he was quite upset about it. He used to suffer, he suffered from nerves he suffered from not thinking he was good enough. I think like all actors do, if you've got quite a small part mm. and you suddenly have to turn up for your one day's filming, especially in something big, it can be quite daunting. It's not, I always think it's much easier to play a big role mm-hmm. in something than it is to, do, to, to, to be a day player. I don't know if you... Particularly agree. filming, day after day, where you just get used you to the routine. You get used to it in the routine, but when you're coming in for a day, you're always the new boy. And so he, mm. I remember he was quite... 
you know, stressed about this and was sort of, oh, was, was it okay? Was I all right? Da, 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 da. And also he was sad because obviously he was very old when he did that. I can't remember how old he was in his 80s. Mm-hmm. But he was sad because he'd, he, at that point, he was only getting cast as people who were dying, <laughs> people on their deathbed, people who, you know, so he was like, this is it, you know. And I remember at the time, I remember when I had that conversation with him, I was at my grandmother's, uh, it was his brother's house, and um, mm. I was rehearsing a play. I was doing a zoo story by Edward Albee, and I remember he was running lines with me, which was rather fun. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and, and my, the person I was doing zoo story with, my friend, my great friend, Will, promised he was going to write him a play where he was being born, like <laughs> in order to combat his his sort of death. Baby. But anyway, yeah, Robert Edison, wonderful actor, wonderful voice. Wonderful. He chose wisely. I miss him dearly. Oh, oh my God, I tell you something. Yeah. The other day I was devastated because I was dicking about on the internet and there was an auction that I noticed there was, and I Googled him and there was an, I noticed there was an auction, a sort of movie memorabilia auction that had come up a couple of years ago where his outfit from that very famous scene had come up for sale. Wow. And I was like, man, I would have bought it. And it wasn't, it didn't, it sold for, you know, not that much. Oh my but it, and God. It, but it no. had, it was his, his great cloak and the sort of armor and the sword. Beautiful. And it had his name written in. But yes, I, great fond memories of Robert. And um, did you know... Now I'm going to ask you this. Did you know that he was the first actor to speak on the Olivier stage? I didn't know that. No. Well, there you are. What an extraordinary thing. Now, did you see that play at the Olivier? My play? The play that you were talking about yeah, at the National yes, Theatre? Yes, it was. At the National. It was at the Olivier. That's, that's the biggest So one. you saw the last performance before lockdown. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And he was the first actor to speak on that stage. Amazing. There you go. Oh. Yeah, he was a dear... I have his OBE somewhere. Uh, he was a. He was a. He was a very dear man. I worked with him. We went to Hong Kong. Yeah, tell me about that. Because we did St. Joan, George Bernard Shaw play yes. with Jane Lapotere playing uh, St. Joan, and yeah. Anthony Quayle as the bishop. Amazing. I played Page, mm. I think, and Monk, mm. but um, he played the Inquisitor. That's right. He sat almost motionless throughout this entire scene, and it's about fourteen pages, I think. Jeez. Yeah, of uninterrupted speech where he's trying to persuade Joan that she needs to confess in order to save her soul. Mm. It had been played in a previous production, which I was in, and that scene ran at about seven minutes. Mm. And when Robert did it, it ran about twice as long. Because, uh, as you remember, Mm. he was a heavy smoker. (laughs) (laughs) He certainly was. was. But he had this absolutely hypnotic voice. What I remember from it is sitting as a young man, dressed as a monk, watching him do this scene, and you couldn't take your eyes off him. Mm. He was absolutely mesmerising. And the audience was completely silent through the whole thing. It was it was brilliant, a really brilliant performance. And he would just have that beautiful floating voice, but then these long, long rasping breaths. Mm. So he would... <laughs> <laughs> but it absolutely held you. Yeah. I remember he was touring once, and he was, do- he was at the Theatre Royal in Newcastle doing... As you like it, maybe I can't remember. Anyway, he and again he was very old, but he was staying. My mother, my mum, and lived in Newcastle. I grew up there, part of my childhood. Anyway, he was staying with us. My mum tasked it upon me to get him to the theatre, and I remember at about sort of four o'clock in the afternoon, I found him just unconscious on the sofa, 
And he was just asleep, but I, I just convinced myself that he died. Mm. And I remember sort of saying, "What, Bob? Wait!" And he was absolutely fine. But I was, <laughs> I was sort of like, "Oh God!" He was delightful to all of us yeah. younger actors. I know that. He, he was, well, he was. Re- I became obsessed by acting because of him. I remember, you know, like I say, going touring his dressing room and doing all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I'm Robert Dallas Campbell. I'm, I was named after. Ah, uh, how lovely! I do remember talking to him, and. I brought up the subject of Roland Maul, and I, I didn't know he had a connection to that, but I brought it up saying it was one of the parts I'd always wanted to play. And he said that Coward had written it with him in mind. Oh, wow. Did you know that? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He wrote it with him in mind, and he nearly played it, but then yeah. it, it was interrupted by the war. He didn't get the chance to play it. I wish I'd, see, I wish I'd known him as, a, as an adult. You know, he yeah. died when I was, when he died in 91 or something. I must have been about 20 or so when he died. So mm. I wish I'd, I'd known him now. And anyway, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's always the way, I think, that actually you really wish that yeah. you were a contemporary of them. Exactly. Yeah. Sitting around waiting for things to happen, actually, as you mentioned in theatre, you mentioned the, the, the play The Walk that I did with Ken Campbell, the great mm-hmm. director. I don't know, what do you call Ken? Director? Comedian? Actor? I, yeah. Impresario? Lunatic? <laughs> Nutter, yes. <laughs> Nutter. Um, <laughs> we did this play called The Warp, which is the world's longest play. It was written by Neil Oram, and lots of people have been in The Warp, and it's a bit, of, it's a bit like... You know, it's a bit, it was a bit like joining a cult when you, when one sort of did the walk, <laughs> but it was a sort of ten play cycle, and each play was the, was the length of Hamlet, and it was twenty twenty nine hours, I think, the one I did. But Ken's rationale was normally when you rehearse a play, ninety percent of your time is spent sitting around doing the crossword, chatting up the leading lady, leading man, <laughs> eating, faffing about, making coffee, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then sort of 10% of its actual sort of work. Mm. So Ken's thing, well, if you take that missing, uh, if you take that missing 90%, then you can do 10 Hamlets in the same space that it would take to rehearse one Hamlet. <laughs> so that's what we did. We, we, you know, the warp is 10 times longer than Hamlet. Yeah. The main part in it is on stage for the entire show. Extraordinary. So, it's ten, so you have to learn 10 Hamlets off by heart. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's that sort of marathon. It's a sort of sporting event. Mm. I love Ken for that. He was, I mean, it was bonkers. I mean, you know, Ken sort of directing... I, was basically, he'd sort of shout at you, like, get off stage and come back on and be better! <laughs> you know, and, and, and he was a monster. He would fill you with horror and terror. And But at the same time, remember, having done the warp, which was like being in a cult, mm. coming off and going and being sort of trying to get back into normal society again <laughs> and struggling. But I remember sort of going into auditions, having done the warp, and just being so free. There is no greater preparation, I think, as being an actor, as, as working with Ken, doing something as balmy as the warp. So there's... There's, there's lots of warp stories. You'll bump into actors, I'm sure you have, oh, yes. who've been in the warp, who'll, who'll tell you their warp war stories. Almost any actor who's ever worked any with actor, Ken Campbell. Any actor, exactly. Any actor, yeah, yeah. but all of them who have all say, did you work with Ken? Did you of work course. with Ken? They, they just love him. Daddy, what did you do in the warp? <laughs> it's the sort, <laughs> it's the sort of... <laughs> if you ever can find the brilliant stretching of the elastic to the back of the audience routine. Do you know <laughs> no, that? No, I didn't do that one, no. It's an extraordinary routine where he went on as a man who said, I can hold this elastic in my mouth and you can stretch it to the back of the audience and then release it and it will fly across the audience and hit me in the face and I can take the full force of it. It's an act I've been working on for a very long time. And so he puts it in his mouth and then an actor drags it through the audience, climbing over the audience, right to the back of the auditorium, pulls it very taut, and then Ken Campbell on stage goes, Now! 
<laughs> goes releasing the elastic. <laughs> He's proper end of the pier stuff, you know, Absolutely, Ken. He, yeah. he has that thing of... Proper end of the pier, you know, he's, uh, you know, sticking ferrets down his trousers and all that. That was, you know, classic. Well, the Ken Campbell Roadshow with yeah. Sylvester McCoy and all the, you know, back in the day, he was very much the sort of the, the enfant terrible when everyone was being terribly grand about uh, the National Theatre and being very serious. And, yeah. you know, he's a brilliant actor, Ken. But he, uh, yeah, he he was a great supposer. He had a wonderful mind. Shit, maybe I should put Ken into my... <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. I could either put Ken into the one thing I want to bury or the thing I want to... Yes, it could be either. I'm not an actor anymore. Now I want to be an actor again. I had actors on my mother's side, Robert Edison. On my dad's side, my dad's brother was an actor, quite a well-known actor. And so I, I, I always thought, yeah, I want to be an actor. And then I started being an actor and I realised I wasn't very good at it. Uh, <laughs> if only you had that armour. Exactly. My skin is too thin. When I first started, when I first moved down to London, I, I'd done a couple of bits of telly. And I thought, right, I've done some telly now, I'm an actor. And then I ended up doing a little two, two-hander at, at the old Red Lion in Islington. And I remember uh, Nick Curtis from the Evening Standard, the mm-hmm. reviewer. Is he still a reviewer at the Evening? Anyway, Nick Curtis, very well-known theatre reviewer, very good theatre reviewer, came and gave me the worst review I've ever read of an actor <laughs> ever. I mean, absolutely <laughs> eviscerated. Is that the word? Me. Yeah. To the point where I couldn't, I was so depressed and so, I lost like two stone of weight. And of course, you get the reviews at the beginning of the run. So I had another whole six weeks of this run. No, you've got to keep going. And you've got to keep going. You can't change it. And you can't change it. And um, he was probably right, but it was, that was sort of the end for me. Too much fear. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awful. It is awful because I actually, again, it's that thing. Sometimes you're on stage and you're brilliant and sometimes you're a little sluggish, you're a little behind the beat, whatever it is. And I know, I know how liberating and brilliant it is when you're standing on stage and it's just working and everything clicks into, Mm. into place. But it, but it's sort of, that, I always think that the trick of acting, well, it has been for me, is to enjoy not working. No, see, I can't. Yeah, this is the thing. So you're good because you do things like set up podcasts. I'm terrible <laughs> at being structureless, not having handrails in life, whether mm. it's being a, in a production or having a job or having some kind of structure. I just find still I haven't got the hang of it. But then I'm only in my late 20s. So yes. Plenty of you can fall apart later. Don't exactly. worry about it. I'll be fine. And talking of lack of structure, <laughs> we should get back to this structure yeah, okay. of this podcast. Maybe we could just have a list at the end of the thing. No, else. I'm happy to hear them and we'll see if it, yeah. where it takes us. Let's see where we go with it. Well, my first, I'll go with my first one. I, my first one is actually a book, actually. It's, it, it's, it's a book. It's called The Worst Journey in the World. I don't know it. Who's it by? It's by Asby Cherry Garrard, and it was written in, I think, 1922 it was written. And he was on Scott Expedition, the ill-fated expedition to um, Antarctica. Wow. And it's his memoir of that expedition. And it's, it's a famous book. It's very famous as a sort of piece of you know, travel writing or adventure writing. Mm. It's, it's, it's w- with, without doubt, the, the greatest chronicle of that particular expedition. And it's huge as well. It's a great tome. It's, you know, it's a couple of inches thick. It's a big, big book. And, mm. and it's, and I've had it for a long time and I never read it, but I read it this year is, and I've been reading, I've been reading a lot this year and I, it, I, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's one of the, I mean, not just the best book about travel and adventure and about how humans behave in adverse situations. I think it's one of the, it's one of the finest books I've ever read. Wow. And I, and it's just, and it, it, finished it about six months ago and it's, I'm carrying it with me the whole time because 
It's just extraordinary. Whoever designed the cover of that book is a genius because that immediately draws you in, doesn't it? It is. I, I thought I might read you the first part. I mean, the thing is about the Scots expedition, and everyone knows the sort of bullet point stories. Mm. Of course, Scott trying to get to the South Pole, and then, of course, Amundsen got there first, and that was a crushing blow, and then they came back and they, they didn't make it back. But as a, as, a, as a story of how science works, because of course, what you don't have is really any context of the mission. And that's what this book does. They were there for years, a couple of years, and they went there to do science. And that's what this story is about. And of course, the race for the pole was a sort of adjunct. It was sort of bolted on. It was never part of the, it was part of the mission, but it was never the main part of the mission. And actually, when you read this chronicle about how the science was done and what they were doing and trying to understand this world. It's a bit like a journey to Mars at the, at the time. Yeah. And the worst journey in the world of which he's talking about, it's not the race for the pole. Before that, about six months before, Apsi Cherry Garrard and, and another group went to find, went to another part of Antarctica to find some penguin eggs. Because at that time, there was a bit of missing science. They wanted to get these eggs at a particular time to look at the embryos, to understand the developmental process and to understand the evolutionary process of, the, of these birds that wasn't really understood. Mm -hmm. So he and, I can't remember, three others set out on this, on this journey of thousands of miles to Cape Crozier in the middle of winter in minus 50 to try and, and they nearly lost their lives. And, and the, the description of human suffering to try and get these eggs is the most beautiful, terrible, harrowing account of how humans behave in adverse situations I've ever, I've, I've ever come across. To the point where they, they get the eggs and they're coming back and they're hunkering down in their tent and it's minus 50 and it's blowing a hurricane and it's pitch black and, you know, they've got frostbite but the eggs are safe. <clears throat> but then the little stove that they're cooking on, a, a whale blubber stove, some of the fat spurts out and hits one of them in the eye and loses an eye and the tent oh, blows away. And, and, and you, you can't believe what you're reading. It's the most... But also, actually, more than anything, it's that sense of camaraderie, that sense of respect that they have for each other, the modesty, the humility by which they talk about it and the reverence towards the, the science and the dedication is just so... It's just... It's just blew me away in, in, a, mm. in a sense where so much writing at the moment, particularly memoirs, are so focused on the self, so self-obsessed. It's all me, 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 me. And this is nothing like that. And just, I remember that, I'm going to read to you the very first paragraph because it's stunning writing. You know, okay, here Ooh. we go. This is the very first paragraph of this. And this is him writing after, after the events of 1922. So he's been in Antarctica for three years. Mm. Polar exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time which has been devised. It's the only form of adventure in which you put on your clothes at Michaelmas and keep them on until Christmas, and, save for a layer of the natural grease of the body, find them as clean as though they were new. It's more lonely than London, more secluded than any monastery, and the post comes but once a year. As men will compare the hardships of France, Palestine or Mesopotamia, so it would be interesting to contrast the rival claims of the Antarctic as a medium of discomfort. A member of Campbell's party tells me that the trenches at Ypres were a comparative picnic, but until somebody can evolve a standard of endurance, I am unable to see how it can be done. Take it all in all, I do not believe anyone on earth has a worse time than an emperor penguin. 
And, <laughs> oh. and that's the good bit. And then it's sort of, it's, it's oh, honestly brilliant. Like, and of course, we've all seen now. We are of a generation where we will have seen all the footage of, of life on Earth, and we would have seen those emperor penguins huddling in a group mm. with incredibly awful freezing weather blowing at them for months, mm. Mm. huddling there protecting their eggs. It's amazing. But it they, amazing. In, when he wrote that, people would have no concept of it at all. It was Mars. So this was post-Shackleton. So Shackleton had been, and so this was after Shackleton, but it mm. was the, you know, this is the golden age of polar exploration where it's still these white patches of the globe were the terra incognita. This was a mm. sort of a, a trip to Mars and nobody was there. And, and, but it's, it's, more than a, it's more than the story of that. It's, it's really how we behave as people. And the writing is is stunning, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to read it. And I, I, I urge everyone to read it. I mean, it's going in my time capsule because just as as a as exemplary factual writing, if you want, of all the books you could choose, I've read a few books mm. in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've read one or two books in my life, and there's some there's some real standout books. Yes, but I don't think I've been quite as bowled over by a piece of writing, certainly for a long time. In fact, this year I've read a lot. I thought, okay, this is going to be my year where I'm going to read my great unread books that I should mm. have read, great Russian novels. <laughs> I read Crime and Punishment first. There's a book. I read Rebecca, which I'd never read, which is another book which I absolutely love. Mm. But this is, yeah, this is this is my absolutely absorbed by the thing. I can it. see because the cover's torn, <laughs> it's all bent, well-thumbed. It is. Well, I, I had to go through it with a pencil and just underline lines because I'm like, how does anyone write so beautifully and so modestly with such humility? None of it is self-serving. That's the thing. I just think a lot of writing these days is so self-serving. There's nothing self-serving about this. Everything is to do with the science and the importance of the science. There's a little prefix about the egg story, you know, throughout all this hardship, they made it back with the eggs. Cut to <laughs> many years later, they go back to the Natural History Museum. He goes back with his penguin's eggs, knocks on the door. He's like, we got your eggs. And the guy's like, we don't need your eggs anymore because science has moved on and we the thing that we didn't know, we know. So it was all a bit of a waste of Jenny. So what is it that really captured you? You're going to see your great uncle in the theatre and suddenly, you know, the smell of it and the being there, that makes you think, I've got to do this. But so what did that for you with science? Uh, it's a really good question, actually. I don't, I, there, was some, there was always something that was magical about theatre. I, I don't know, for science for me, growing up, I, I'm not a scientist at all. I was terrible at science. You know, the, people always think because I talk about science and, and do science programmes that you must be a scientist, which is a bit like saying, oh, you like music, you must be a musician. Or, <laughs> wait, you've gone to the cinema, you must be a film director. We still have this kind of like weird thing about only scientists have license to talk about science, which is mm. really, really ridiculous. I suppose for me, it was growing up in my time when I was a kid watching things like Tomorrow's World and watching things like Life on Earth mm-hmm. and James Burke's Connections and all the, the, that sort of golden golden age. You know. Bronowski and things like that. And Bronowski, yeah, yeah The Ascent of Man. So I remember, you know, Bronowski, extraordinary. But those sort of science documentary, I just found they were wonderful stories, amazing stories about how we know what we know. Mm. I never, I just never really lost that love of of, of that, really, those, those amazing stories. Actually, working with Ken Campbell, the director, Ken, again, was one of those people who just had a, a mind that was tuned to great stories and science is full of great stories. Ken did a series for Channel 4, I guess in the sort of late 90s, called Reality on the Rocks, where Ken was trying to understand the quantum realm and the kind of weird quantum physics and all this kind of stuff. And I really like that. There's something, I think the bonkersness of of modern physics, I really like. The things <laughs> yes. that we don't know, the weirdness. And, and also thinking about, you know, the universe 
on one end of the scale and the tiny at the other end of the scale. Mm. I remember in 1977, I remember it very precisely, Charles and Ray Eames, the great designers, the great, of course, the Charles and Ray Eames, they designed chairs and other kinds of things, but they made lots of films. And there was a film called Powers of Ten that was made with IBM for, I think, a particular exhibition. And it was this beautiful film. And it started off with two picnickers by the side of a lake in Chicago. And every sort of 10 seconds, you'd pull out by a factor of 10 until you were at the <laughs> very end of the universe. And then you'd come back in again. And then we'd go into the into the hand of the picnicker by the thing and we're going to his skin and then we'd get into the atomic realm and mm-hmm. so i love i just as a young you know young boy and that was the, you know 1977 star wars had just come out close encounters had just come out but i remember that particular short film it's called powers of 10 it's on youtube absolutely transfixed me those ideas of scale i just loved and just and i think science just lends itself very well to storytelling because if you think about how stories work you, you know you're beginnings, middles, and ends. So with science, you have a question, we don't know this. And then there's a a thing that is done, a method. We're going to go and find out. We go on a quest. And at the end, there is some kind of answer. So there is a natural structure of the scientific method that lends itself to story. I often think that actually you need somebody who's not necessarily enveloped in all the detail of it. Thank (laughs) you. It's true. My wife is a scientist. She's a doctor of biochemistry. And she said, here's my PhD. Would you like to read it? And I read the title which had something about a thing called Fapsigargin in it and the effects mm. of it on T-cell activation. Yeah. Um, and that's about as far as I got. I went, I don't even understand the title. But it doesn't matter. But you, but a bit like reading music, you don't need to be able to read the music to be able to listen to the music and appreciate the music. No. But when she told me what it was about and what she'd yeah. been doing and she described it and I didn't have to read all those words that I didn't know, I thought, well, that's amazing. Well, that's exactly it. And that's why people like Bronowski, who we mentioned, Jacob Bronowski or Carl Sagan or James Burke. I mean, actually, I'm holding up another book here. Here is Bronowski's The Ascent, the Ascent of, of Man. Man, which is the great um, science book from the, from the 1970s. Funnily enough, mm. actually, I did, I did a, at the, one of the episodes of The Ascent of Man. Bronowski does this scene at Auschwitz. I don't know if you, rem- if you, if you remember. I do remember it, it yes. And he talks about the dangers of absolute knowledge. When human beings strive for absolute knowledge, this happens. And there's a scene where he's talking about that. He says, as a scientist, but as as a survivor, I come here to Auschwitz to, you know, to to talk about this. And there's a scene where he walks, does this piece to Cameron, he walks into this pond where the ashes of the people who had been killed there had been scattered. And he's in his suit and he's up to his knees in the water and he bends down and picks up the ashes. And it's the most extraordinary piece of television that, that I think has ever been made. And, and mm. I had a chance to, with an actor, Oliver Senton, we did it on stage, actually. We recreated that that scene oh, and did it on stage. And, it, and it's just, you know, this is what I mean by science communication, that type of thing, because it taps into all areas of human culture. And I think there is a problem that people think that science is somehow outside of human culture, that only the scientists do it. And I think it's a really damaging thing. And of course, science becomes very politicised, as we've seen this year. And, and But science as a, as a sort of cultural thing is, is important for everyone. So I, I agree with, with you. I think it's really important because if you only have scientists talking about science, then science becomes something other. Yes. But if you have all... You know, people like Robin Ince, who you've had on the show, is a really good example of someone who's not a scientist who, like me, loves science, loves talking about science, loves scientists, mm-hmm. loves, you know, wrestling with these great ideas and concepts. And then also, beautifully, I think, and this is something that a lot of people object to with science, what he really likes is when something is absolutely accepted by almost everybody and then we find out it's wrong. 
exactly. Well, everything in science that we know now is wrong. It's subject to change. I always say, you know, uncertainty is the engine of science. Uncertainty yes. is the thing that makes science tick. And makes it joyous, I think. Absolutely. And the great thing about science is it doesn't give a shit what you think. It's like, <laughs> it's just the data that's coming in. And actually the book that I'm putting in, you know, Worst Journey in the World, mm. as a way of understanding what science is and how it works, I, I can't really think of a, of a better book. Mm. You know, it's just the description of the science about what they do, the day-to-day, -day, the mundane, the boring, the... It's just... It, it's... Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Brilliant. Well, then we shall put it in. It's in! It's safe, and you can read it again anytime you like. <laughs> so that's our first item. Yeah. Well done, us. <laughs> two hours in. And <laughs> Welcome to part two. Of... <laughs> Sorry. I didn't get out much. All right, Dallas, that's fantastic. Let's move on to item number two. Item number two, I, I struggle with this, and it was, it's a film. It's not a film, actually. It's a series of films. In fact, it's not even a series of films. It's, it's a whole canon of film. It's an oeuvre. And in fact, it's not even an oeuvre. It's the entire person who makes the films. I want to put Werner Herzog in my time capsule. Oh, right. And, and everything he's ever done. I only really know the um, Nosferatu, that's right. Nosferatu, it? which yeah, was very, very good, which is a sort of remake of Murnau's original uh, mm. Nosferatu. I, again, you know, I, I want to put Herzog in because as an artist, as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a, as a commentator, as a, I, I, he's, for me, without, without equal in any genre. I find his work and his mind brilliant. He's one of these artists who, he always says filmmaking comes from the thighs. It's a sporting event. He's, his work <laughs> ethic is just amazing. And he just has a, an incredible way of seeing the world. And even his bad films I'm fascinated by. Mm. But I just find Herzog's canon is extraordinary and he's you know he's he effortlessly switches between the famous feature films of Herzog like um well you mentioned Nosferatu but mm. Fitzcarraldo and the enigma of Caspar Hauser and and such and his documentaries uh Grizzly Man is probably his most famous documentary about Timothy Treadwell who goes and lives with bears in, in Alaska and gets eaten um but he has a he has a you know he has a, an interesting way of seeing the world which few particularly documentary filmmakers have. He doesn't just report what happens. He, he kind of finds a deeper truth in things. Um, and I just, yeah, I love his mind. So I want to put Herzog himself in, in it. And he has this, he has this wonderful way of speaking. You know, whenever you talk about Herzog, you can't help but go into this kind of strange Bavarian thing. A bit like when you talk about Ken Campbell, you end up talking like this. But Herzog, yeah, he's a, he's a great character. And there are themes, there are themes and motifs that are throughout his his entire canon of films. He's obsessed by how human beings constantly are trying to sort of tame nature. And of mm. course we always get thwarted. So he's, you know, he plays with this, this idea of, of humans and nature and, 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 and how it all kind of fits together. Those people who, who plow their own furrow mm. in life are quite extraordinary, aren't they? Particularly if they plow their own furrow and then get noticed as it were, they don't just, I mean, maybe you need to absolutely plough your own furrow. Yeah. I'm not going to say that phrase again. As three times I've furrow. said plough your own furrow. No, it's furrow. good. I, I'm too, this is the thing about fear. Like, I, you know what I love about Herzog? He has no fear. He doesn't give a shit what people think. Mm. And he does his thing. And that's the most liberating thing in life. You know, and this is the problem as, you know, if you're a performer or an artist, if you care about what people think, <laughs> you're kind of, you're going to be doomed, I think. Yes. I had that very conversation just yesterday. Did you? I'm working on a television thing, and mm. I'm very excited to say that one of the members of the cast is Julian Barrett. Mm. And I've always, from the first moment I saw The Mighty Boosh, I've thought that uh, his work was extraordinary. But we were talking Fearless. exactly about that, the fact that you just have to go, I like this, I think it's good, I'm just going to do this. And it's hard. And, I, you know, I... I 
plough through life and I still haven't quite got the hang of it yet. I remember actually, it was, when I was a kid, I had a friend and I remember staying at my friend's house and I remember my friend's dad coming up to me and quite aggressively sitting me down and saying, whatever happens in life, don't be afraid. Don't, f-. and it was kind of like really, it was like totally out of the blue. Like we were sitting <laughs> watching television and he sort of pulled me aside. He's like, if you want to do something, do it. Do not wait for permission. And, he, and I'm like, what? And I was like, okay. And it was just like a weird, weird conversation. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, he was dead. Good Lord. And he died of cancer. He must have been in his 40s. He must have known, I think. He must have known. And I remember him sort of pulling me aside and giving me this bit of advice. And I remember c- carrying it with me and thinking, oh, well, so, you know, it's easy to say that, but the actual, the actual doing it of it is... Um, well, quite often I think people know that because they haven't. Do you know what I mean? They've gone through well, the, not doing it and then they, they regret it and it becomes clear to them that what they should have done is just gone for it. Exactly. So if anyone's watching this in the year 3000 and they've stumbled upon this particular episode, mm. have no fear. Just don't care what people think. Go and... Pl- what was your... Plough your own furrow. Plough your own furrow. I'm holding a book called Werner Herzog, A Guide for the Perplexed. And it's a, it's a, it's an inter- it's a single interview with Herzog. And it's, a, again, a great tome, as you can see, well marked. But on the back, on the back cover, it's kind of got Herzog's Guide to Life. Mm-hmm. And there are wonderful things that Herzog says. Thwart institutional cowardice. Ask for <laughs> forgiveness, not permission. And I think asking for forgiveness, not permission, is the great... We've become quite fearful, I think, in life because of the way that life is set up and the way institutions are set up. We're scared. We, 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 we don't want to step out of line. And, and Herzog as an artist is one of those great reminders of, A, that, and also how the poet must never avert their eyes. Mm. Keep your eyes open. No artist, I think, sums that up better than Herzog. If you watch a Herzog film, <laughs> there is just a magic and a humour. He's hilarious. I think if you're going down that route of doing something because you mm. you think it's right or you believe it's going to work and then it's a disaster, mm-hmm. people will forgive you. If you ask to do the thing, you say, can I do this? And they say no, then you can't do it because they've already said no. So you have to do the thing before they said, for example, <laughs> I did this, uh, it was a BBC One science series and it was a three-part documentary series called Supersize Earth. And we were going going around Earth, looking at these amazing engineering projects. And da-da-da. and I, I had Herzog in my brain. So I wanted to kind of smuggle in these sort of Herzog kind of like dream sequences, kind of like weird shit. But this is like prime time, seven o'clock BBC One. And I knew that if we sort of did that, they'd just say, no, of course you can't do that. But I remember we were in Japan and Nat, our director, was the point we were trying to make is like, you know, we were in Tokyo, this incredible city. What's the point of cities? Why are we doing this? And ultimately the point is cities are where people come together. Mm-hmm. And this is what we do as humans. And we wanted to sort of find a, a visual way of doing that. So we thought, well, we're into Tokyo. What do they do in Tokyo? Karaoke. So I'm like, wow, <laughs> let's do a karaoke dream sequence where I'm Elvis <laughs> and we'll, we'll shoot it in like slow motion. And I'll, a bit like in Wild at Heart. One of my favourite movie scenes ever is Nicolas Cage in Wild at Heart. And he's on stage and Laura Dern's in the audience and he does, treat me like a fool, treat me mean and cruel, but love me. Let's do that. And that was like, yeah, let's do it. And we'd been travelling so much, we'd already gone a bit Lord of the Flies, we'd already gone a bit crazy. You know, back in London, the people in the production office were like, what's happened to them? They've gone crazy. But we shot this dream sequence 
you know, we shot it off speed. It was beautiful. And, and there were people in the audience dressed up in fancy dress. And I, I had a full Elvis costume on. And I, I don't know what the hell we were thinking. Like, this isn't going to be on 7 o'clock BBC One. But we shot it anyway. And uh, anyway, we got absolutely bollocked for it, like, properly. They're like, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, because it's it's art, man. Come it's on. interesting. It's interesting. Come on. So anyway, Herzog is my reminder of that. Great. Whatever that is. I mean, I have tried that in my life. I've always tried that thing of apologise rather than say, is it all right if I do this? And actually, I then spend most of my life apologising. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it can go badly wrong. This is the yes. thing. But you know what? We're humans. We're not perfect. And humans striving for perfection is an admirable thing, but you'll never, ever get there. And the interesting thing about being perfect is being perfect is really fucking boring only <laughs> only gods are perfect and nobody mm. wants to be anything as boring as a god as far as i'm concerned so our mistakes our foibles our errors are mucking about is it's okay there's another oh, just before we move on i'm going to just uh, there's a couple of other nice ones he says always take the initiative there's nothing wrong with spending a night in jail if it means getting the shot you need <laughs> Never wallow in your troubles. Despair must be kept private and brief. Learn to live with your mistakes. <sighs> well, then, in that case, Herzog, straight in there. Straight in. Marvellous. That's two items. Okay. Let's move on to number three. Right, we have to take a short break in this podcast now for the adverts that fund it. So please be patient with us, and we'll see you again in a moment. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the second part of Dallas Campbell's Time Capsule. Let's find out what else he'd like to put in it. Number three, I'm going to put my tent in. I love tents. I adore tents. I love, sometimes I go on tent websites and look at um, tent <laughs> construction. I, I don't know what is it. There's something, when I was very little, I used to, I used to love the idea of exploration and, and explorers and going and camping and all this kind of stuff. And I remember 
I grew up in a, when I was very young, in Hartlepool, actually. Um, and I remember having a bike and I remember getting a dust sheet, an old dust sheet and some bamboo canes and kind of making a tent. And I remember sort of strapping it to my bike and sort of, I had this idea of sort of adventure. And I love tents because I love the design of tents. I love the functionality of a, of a well-made tent. I love everything about them, the, the, the smallness of it, the design, the way the pockets work and everything else and it's also a sort of portal to adventure when i was younger i used to go camping i used to be in i used to be in the ccf combined cadet forces and i used to go camping and i, I used to really like camping and it's something i haven't done for ages and then recently last year i actually went up to the outer hebrides and did a bit of wild camping mm. and i just remembered how much i love being outside in the wilderness about gosh six or seven years ago i took my kids when they were little we went wild camping around northern norway and sweden and again that was another reminder of um how much how much i love that but the tent is is the in a way the kind of magic doorway it's that portal to wonderful places and adventures and there's just something very satisfying about something that's really well designed to do one thing mm. and so i'm going to put my i'm going to put my tent in there what sort of tent is it it's not a pop-up tent no no it's a it's a, it's a msr elixir three for those if you want to google it right but um but that but it's so it's a sort of um a backpacking tent but there's you know expedition tents and we talked about antarctica of course and, and the scott expedition they had tents very very different to the tents you might have now there are tent companies like um Trango 2 or the Hilleberg tents, the Swedish tents, you know, they're designed for these sort of big expeditions to the Antarctic or Everest or all these sorts of things. But they, I, I just, I love how they, I love the te- the technical aspect of it as well. I find it very satisfying how tents have moved from a sort of a single pole and a sort of triangle. Mm-hmm. New materials mean now you can bend pole, the thin aluminium tubes means you can have curves and all different kinds of shapes. I suppose it's the story of technology as well, actually, the story of material science, the story of technology, how we use technology and, and materials to extend us as humans and make where we go and our adventures better. So yes, I love my tent. It's a really good thing. Well, in fact, it's not even tents. It, it can be anything. I just love sort of diving into how well-made things are made. And camping, because it's about weight saving and it's about functionality and it's about how practical can you get, there's nothing extraneous about it. Everything is there for a reason. And and there is something really, really satisfying about that. I have a Primus camping stove, again, which I love. It's so mm. light and it works. It's just not shit. You don't have to <laughs> download an update. <laughs> you know, there's something <laughs> gloriously analog about camping stuff. I have a camping knife buck camping knife american brand of camping knife i just love it so i yeah it's that sort of it's the it's my inner ray mears <laughs> I, I find i i want to put in there as well i recently went to the welsh hills well i went to pembrokeshire mm. and stayed uh, on a farm with my wife and we went walking over the hills in pembrokeshire mm. and we came across an old couple that he looked like uh I mean, he looked like George Bernard Shaw as he trudged off across the hill. And we asked him if we were going the right direction because we we typically hadn't brought a rain mac. We hadn't brought a map. We didn't have any water with us. We just set off across these hills rather mm. stupidly. But he was there with his backpack and his wife. Not in the backpack. She wasn't no, in the backpack. No, no, but uh, he, he clearly was wild camping. He had this thing yeah. on his back that was just, we're just walking across here. When we want to stop, we'll stop and pitch a tent. It'll be fine. I love that. So, the trouble is in England, you can't do that. We don't really generally have that same connection to our environment that they do in Sweden. My stepmother's Swedish and I'd spent a bit of time in Sweden growing up. 
they're so connected with the mountains and the forest and the sea, and it's just part of the culture in a way that it's sort of not here. But even in Scotland now, there are bits of Scotland where, like in the Trossachs, you can't wild camp anymore because it's become sort of open to abuse. People litter and they make a mess. And one of the things I love about wild camping is being utterly obsessive about not leaving a mark. I mean, not even a mark. So if you're building a fire, you're being really careful to remove the turf so you can put the turf back later and making sure that you don't leave the stone circle. You might have built a fire. You know, it's everything. So nothing is left. Not even a footprint is left. Right. And I, there's something for me really satisfying about that ethos. But that's something we can learn en masse, isn't it? Hopefully. And it's funny, actually, I think, you know, we're so used to package holidays in the UK of escaping to the sun. And now, of course, we're being sort of forced to sort of holiday at home. That's mm. put huge pressure on areas of outstanding beauty in the UK. I know people get very, you know, up in the Peak District or in Cornwall, you know, they've seen this huge sort of influx of people and it becomes quite difficult if you if you live there. The trouble is in the UK, there's a lot of people live in the UK. You know, we are, mm. we're a densely populated island. So we have to, yeah, hopefully it's changing. Hopefully our, our attitude to our surroundings changes. I remember, and this was, yeah, six or seven years ago, I remember driving, crossing this Norwegian border and night was beginning to fall, starting to get a bit dark and stopping at the border guard and, and, you know, he stopped. I went down the window and said, by the way, do you know anywhere suitable where we might camp? And he looked at me inquisitively and we said well you can camp right here if you want you know that's the thing it's so it's, you would not get that in fact i can give you an example of that a friend of mine the other day complained to me that somebody who was homeless and was in new cross in london mm. had a small tent that he put up every night outside the station and in the morning hopefully mm. people would give him some money or mm. a cup of coffee and he saw him reasonably regularly and he walked past and the man was without his tent. And he said, what happened to the tent? He said, the police took it away. He said, I wasn't allowed oh, to camp Jesus. here. Yeah, I know. It's just, yeah. A tent is a, it's a home. You know, it's one of these, it's a basic human right to have a sort of, to be able to have a roof over your head. Very good. Then we will put your tent into the time capsule. So Dallas, um, we've got two more items to put in. Oh, have we? Herzog, yeah. worst journey in the world. And a tent. Oh, yeah, we've got two more things. Okay, so my next thing I want to put in is my space suit. <laughs> I've got one of those, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, maybe it's a false memory, but I certainly remember remembering, so maybe it's a meta-memory, but I remember when I was being young, <laughs> my dad lives um, near Jodrell Bank in Macclesfield, a big radio telescope, mm. and I have a very particular memory of, it must have been in the mid-70s, so just after the Apollo missions had ended, going to Jodrell Bank. And in the sort of visitor centres there, in a kind of glass box, they had one of the Apollo spacesuits, one of those big white spacesuits. And there's just something iconic. If you want to sort of pick a bit of 60s iconic clothing, Mm. you might pick Elvis's white jumpsuit, for example, or you're going to pick that famous picture of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon in that white suit with a kind of gold visor helmet. It's just, there's something amazing about it. Mm. Anyway, I love that. And I remember... Round about the same time, going round a stately home, and at the bottom of the stairs, they had a suit of armour at the bottom of the stairs in this stately home. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? When I'm a grown-up, I don't want a suit of armour at the bottom of my stairs. I want that spacesuit. I think that would be a brilliant <laughs> thing to have. And I, it's finally come true. I actually, I became really interested in, in the history and the development of the spacesuit. And I think, again, because it taps into adventure, this idea that one can wear something that extends you as a human into not just 
extreme realms on earth, but you can ascend to the heavens. In a way, there's something kind of, there's a sort of almost quasi-religious image of that, of that the, the priest puts on the robes and they, they sort of become closer to God. They're, they're fascinating objects. And I've been lucky in my career that I've, I, I did a documentary about the history of the spacesuit. And we had a chance to go to the Smithsonian where all those historic suits are kept. And, you know, and we actually got to play with them. And because, of course, those suits, when the astronauts went to the moon in the 60s and 70s, those suits were only designed to last for one go. You know, they mm. were never reused. And so the one thing they weren't designed to protect against was time. So 50 years later, they, they've become these sort of cultural objects that have a huge value in terms of understanding how materials work and how, you know, if we, if we want to explore further into the solar system, what, what we might wear. And the design at the time is fascinating because, of course, when Kennedy made his famous speech in 1962, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Back then, they had no idea how to get to the moon. They had no idea how to build a rocket to get to the moon. No. They certainly had no idea how to build a spacesuit. And at the time, there was a company who you'll know called Playtex, who made women's bras and, and girdles. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, designing things like women's bras and girdles, you have to understand materials. You have to understand how to move in materials, how materials work and flexibility and comfort and all these different things. And Playtex, you know, used all these new materials that were coming online at the time in the, in the early 60s, nylon, dacron, neoprene, all these new chemicals made by DuPont and these exciting world of materials away from cotton mm. and so they they the uh, well the sort of military division or the industrial division of playtex ilc dover was taken on to make these suits and all the women who whose job it was to stitch bras and girdles and suitcases in, in delaware in the delaware garment district were brought on to make these spacesuits and they're the most beautiful objects the way they are stitched the way they are designed the materials that are used it has a it's a fascinating piece of history cultural mm. history and also they're, they're beautiful objects that just say so much there used to be a tv show um a kid's show that i used to like called mr ben yes and the, uh, and the animation mr ben who had a terribly ordinary life in acacia avenue and Mr. Ben, at the beginning of each episode, would walk down the street to the magic costume shop and, <laughs> and he'd put on the costume, whatever it was, the cowboy outfit or the undersea diver's outfit or the spacesuit, and he'd put that on and walk out and he'd have that adventure. Mm. And I always liked that as an idea, as a, as a sort of format for a TV show. But as an object, I always wanted one. So, I, And I have... I had a, a few years ago, I had a few actually, I had a few of the Russian uh, Sokol suits, the one that's sort of Tim Peake and Helen Sharman used on, which used on the, on the Soyuz rocket. Yeah. I, ha I had one. I have a friend who collects them. And of course you can't buy a spacesuit really. They're, they're not cheap, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> but I had, I had some and I used to, and I used to take uh, these Russian spacesuits and do lots of STEM activities for kids because I tell you something, something about having a real spacesuit, an actual spacesuit that's actually been worn and actually gone into space. There is a fascinating thing. And you know the kid, you know, the thousandth kid that puts on the real spacesuit glove will be the kid that goes on to invent warp drive or... Yeah. Or it's, it's as, as an object that is a portal for appreciating science, appreciating exploration and, and, and adventure. But it's like you say, those stories again, mm. going back to those stories, mm. which then draw you in. I was talking to my grandson the other day and talking about a small meteor that somebody had found on their drive. 
Yes, I saw that story. Yes. Amazing story. Amazing story. Amazing story. And, and I was explaining to him that the rock that it was made of was older than the Earth. Yeah, well, older than probably, you know, right at the beginning of the solar system. This is, it's astonishing, I mean, isn't it? It's, it is, it's astonishing. And we talked about 13 and a half billion years and what that was. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 you could well, see his imagination yeah. just well, fired by it. It's because we're story animals. Humans are story animals. We see patterns in nature. We make stories. And objects are a great way of tapping into that. So, for example, you can pick up any old rock and it doesn't mean the same thing as that particular rock because that particular rock has a story attached to it. It's come down from space and it's landed on someone's driveway and it's been found. I'm always amazed by, you know, those. You know, it doesn't have the same, it's not imbued with the same magic if you like, that any old rock has. And we like objects for that reason, because they, you know, and a space it again, it's such a random thing, but it, it's, it taps into a culture and a set of stories and a set of values that, that just resonate. Anyway. Mm. So there you go. So I, and I, so I have some spacesuits. I've got an Apollo one. It's not a real one, but I've got a friend called Ryan Nagata, who is an American props maker. He makes spacesuit replicas for movies, and he did some of the suits for First Man, wow. you know, the Neil Armstrong biopic. And they are perfect visual analogues of these historic items of clothing. And, the, you know, he'll, he'll make you one. I mean, they, many thousands of pounds they'll cost you. But I, I actually own his, the very first one he made. I've got, a, I've got a, a, a replica of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, and it is the most. I rent it out from to movies and stuff, and, and t- I take it I to bet. shows. But I love it. It's, it's in a way, it's slightly become part of me. Really, they look rather flimsy. I always remember thinking when, as a young boy, thinking, yeah. that looks really dodgy. Yeah, they are. I mean, the, the actual material, that white material, it's a material called beta cloth. It's a very, very abrasive resistance, actually sort of a glass fibre kind of woven material. Right. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, I can get really nerdy about materials now. You couldn't risk a, a hole, could you? No, well, this is the thing. So it has to be, I mean, the, there's about 20 layers of those suits and all kinds of different layers designed with different functions. So the white oversuit that you see is, mm-hmm. is, is beta cloth. And then there's, but they're rubberized, so they inflate. You know, that's the whole point about a spacesuit. It, it is a wearable spacecraft that has the dimensions of one human being. So they fit, mm-hmm. so you, you take your air pressure with you. But they are miracles of engineering in a way that a rocket is a you know a spacecraft. It's it's that technical. Mm. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the space. So I'm going to take my space and my Ryan Nagata. Go and Google Ryan Nagata and mm-hmm. look at his Instagram page, and you, that's a rabbit hole. That's deep. <laughs> what I like about it, this, his skill of being able to replicate these objects, mm. the attention to detail he goes into is just staggering. Brilliant. What a thing to own. I love it. Okay, well, that's very carefully put into the time capsule. So one item left. Is this the thing I don't like? Uh, yes, usually. I'm not sure that you dislike many things. No, I do. Well, I tell you, and I think I'm, I'm a bit worried because I've, I'm turning into a sort of middle-aged man grump. <laughs> I just find recently just, I get really frustrated now when, I guess it's the sort of slightly computer says no culture. Every time I try and do something online, it involves somebody telling me, oh, the system's down. So I just don't know what that system is. No. Like, why is it always down? Or if I try and do something and it doesn't work, people look endlessly telling me, that's weird. That doesn't normally happen. I just sort of get that a lot. And I just find that annoying. It is frustrating, isn't it? And I don't know what, I don't know what it's called in order to put it in my time capsule. For everyone else, it seems to be so blissfully easy. And then they tell you that that normally doesn't happen. So the system and that normally doesn't happen are the two things I want to banish to mm-hmm. forever. 
people endlessly telling me how simple things are and then I do them and they're never fucking simple. It's a pain in the... Sorry for swearing. It's a pain in the ass. Hey, you know what I was going to put in for this last one? And then somebody else has bloody done it. Richard Herring put in mm. his swollen, infected testicle. And I had a really <laughs> similar story and I was thinking about it the other day and as I was going through, I listened to Richard Herring and he also put in his swollen testicle. So I'm not going to put that in. <laughs> Well, at least then we'd have a pair. I said, well, actually, maybe I'll put my smell in test. I won't put it in. <laughs> I fixed my boiler yesterday. And I didn't know how to fix a boiler, but I figured it out. And it's you can figure it out. And I fixed it. it you know, when something goes wrong with your iPhone, it's, <laughs> you can't do that. And what, what's happened is we've, there is that. And when you're dealing with people, if you need something done, they can't break out of the, the way that the algorithmic system is set up. No. And that's the thing. There's, we have the, oh, oh this computer says no, and it's the famous <laughs> thing. And so it's that. I, yeah. I just find it. Actually, the thing that annoys me most is my attitude to it, I think. It's like, I wish I didn't get so grumpy about it. I wish I had a, a slightly more laissez-faire attitude. Oh, but no, but you love the adventure of discovery. You love finding how they actually work. Yes. So suddenly people saying, sorry, it's just not working. It's not good enough, is it? It's not. But why is it I prefer tentpole technology to... to, to I don't know. It's, I don't know. There's certain bits of things I... I think I'm a bit analogue still in my brain. I have to be less grumpy about computer says no and when something happens and it goes wrong and I try and fix it and I'm talking to someone and they say, well, it's just, oh, that's odd. The system... Oh, there's, yeah, I'm afraid the system's down today. I have to be less grumpy about that. We'll put that in then. Yeah, but let's call it me being a grumpy old man i'm gonna okay. i want to get rid of that well i don't find you grumpy at all dallas it's been really lovely to talk to you and it's been a joy to be able to pass on that information about your great uncle he's one of those people who i've sort of carried i was i was in awe of him as a young man as a young man as a boy i was in awe of him um i, I find him fascinating he was so different to the rest of my family robert was an artist and there was something about being an artist and that he was sort of my portal into it. Mm. My dad's brother was an actor called Peter Finch, who I never knew. And Peter died when I was young. He was a great actor. He was a great actor. And I never met Peter. My grandfather, Dallas Campbell, was Peter's father and he had an affair, hence Peter. So so he was my dad's half-brother. My dad and Peter knew each other, but they only met really sort of later in life. And and it's always a bit of a slightly swept under the carpet story. So I never had any contact with him. But again, he's one of those people who in my superstition, he's always kind of been on my shoulder as a bit of a a sort of slightly guiding, (laughs) you know. I always sort of say, thank you, Peter. Isn't he responsible for um, Laurence Olivier breaking up with... Correct. Mm. He was responsible for all kinds of things. Well, he was a very handsome man. He was a very handsome man and he was a bit of a... And he was a a great character from by all accounts. We've got another episode of this to do, I think. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dallas Campbell. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already for all episodes as they're released and the chance to rate the show and maybe even review it. You can follow me or My Time Capsule on the normal social media outlets for news of what's coming up and the people we're talking to. This podcast was made through Acast and is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. 
The theme tune was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available on Spotify to download or stream. Our next episode features the brilliant stand-up comedian Angela Barnes. So that should be a cracker. One of those really classy ones you get with cheese at a top restaurant, you know, made of seaweed or quinoa or something that very few people actually like, but where you're supposed to put cheese on it that comes from Bolivia and costs four quid for a tiny slice. Uh, but of course, unlike those titchy, tasteless biscuits, this is a gorgeous and tasty morsel that will keep you nourished for several days, even without the cheese. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is, and I'm I'm not absolutely sure that I've got this across clearly. Maybe I have, but who knows. Uh, Anyway, what I want to say is, um, this will be a good episode. Which I should have just said from the start, because, I mean, I know it is. Because I was there when it was made, and I had a great time. Uh, All in all, I'm not sure I've made the best job of selling Angela Barnes' episode. But we are at episode 118, so... Please ignore the hype and trust past experience. There we are. Done it. Thank you. I'm sure there's an easier way to make a living. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.